So a guy walks into a bar and says, hey, I want to give care to as many people that need it as possible without neglecting my own well-being and cultivating my ability to show up for these people. The bartender looks at him and says, well, what does he say? This is Stefan Ravalli telling you that this is it. Everything you need is available to you right here, right now. All the skills, insight, joy, fluidity, wisdom, growth, inspiration, all depends on your relationship to what you do and to yourself. You see, I've realized after over like a decade in hospitality and then also teaching meditation and mindfulness, the grit and grime of service life, like waiting tables in a restaurant, that's where everything I've cultivated gets actioned and tested. That's where you can learn everything you need to know about mastering yourself. Welcome to the Serve Conscious Podcast. Let's talk about how this all works. Hey guys, I'm uh, outside today to record the intro to today's interview. It's Miami and it's July. Somehow it's hot. Didn't expect that to happen. I just needed a change of scenery at any cost. The cost is sweating a bit. Because it's really easy for me to just burrow into a dark office all day and uh, plug away at things rather than uh, getting outside or refreshing my senses with uh, some other venue or activity. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm caring for myself, which is actually one of today's uh, main topics. Recently, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Janet Fouts, who is someone who cares about care. And by that, I mean she is always exploring how to do it consciously and skillfully. So you're not just effusively giving and chasing around the needs of the people you're caring for. You're being aware of yourself in the process and what you need as well, and what the situation needs. And so in her explorations of the art of caregiving, she has incorporated her training in mindfulness and emotional intelligence, which has come together in a sort of campaign to educate people on mindful caregiving, which she distilled in her book, When Life Hits the Fan. This perspective is really valuable to anyone that has any sort of service role. Because any such role involves the extension of care. Doing something outside of yourself means you are communicating that you care about it in your actions. And if you are professionally obligated to attend to the needs of others, when maybe you don't necessarily want to be, then you have to find a way of caring (laughs) to make you effective at your job. People need to feel like you care to want to be in any sort of dynamic with you. Like they could even be your business partner. They need to know that you care about the business and its goals as much as they do. Communicating and expressing care is absolutely capital in cultivating a sound relationship. 
So looking at caregiving is really valuable. And when I say caregiving, I mean you have someone close to you fall ill or become incapacitated in some way, and you are the one that basically helps them live and function on a daily basis. You are devoted to serving them in that way. This is like an extreme form of care. This is the most care that a situation can require that I can think of, or at least the most care that one individual can require. Someone that's incapacitated and you are the person living with them and charged with getting them through the day every single day. It's really, really intense and taxing. And a lot of people can't imagine it because it is a life that looks totally different from one that anyone else can live. Obviously, parenting is similar. But it seems to be more taxing because you're not caring for someone that is building their own self-sufficiency, but someone who has oftentimes declining self-sufficiency. And so uh, Janet has found in her work that the biggest thing that gets neglected in these dynamics is the person that's caring. They're just constantly firing energy outwards without considering what they require for them to be mentally and physically healthy. And the thing about the care dynamic is that for any act of service to be of highest value, the person serving, the caregiver, has to be in full health. So there's this sort of like cycle of hubris that occurs where the caregiver thinks that every single moment of every day, the needs of the person they're caring for have to be the highest priority. And doing so actually degrades their ability to meet those needs. And this is where understanding the self-other cycle that I talk about comes in. You need to care for yourself because that allows you to care for the other better. And this all comes from cultivating awareness. Mindfulness, emotional intelligence, those are Janet's frameworks. I'm definitely very familiar with mindfulness. It is a state where you are constantly aware of what's occurring, the needs of the moment, and yourself in the moment. And noticing when you're depleted and not really able to show up as you need to. Great, so I'll let my discussion with Janet elaborate on what I'm setting up here. Really excited to hear her story, her evolution, and how thoughtful she was in tying all of this into restaurant work and her very rich history in restaurants. And she provides some really valuable mindfulness tools that someone in a service environment, any service environment, can use. Okay, so I'm here with Janet Fouts of Tattoo Digital Media and Nearly Mindful. She has an extremely eclectic and rich background that includes everything from emotional intelligence training, mindfulness training in the leadership and corporate arena, as well as mindful caregiving, which I think is an incredibly uh, 
relevant industry to, to what I do here and extremely, um, I think, underattended in terms of, you know, learning how to do it consciously. So I'm really excited to talk about that and all the other stuff she's working on, um, bringing mindfulness into areas that uh, you wouldn't normally see it like I like to do. And um, that includes especially uh, social media and marketing, which I wouldn't normally consider mindfulness, but that is your background. Janet, welcome to the show, first of all. No, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. It'll be really great. Tell me a bit about your story and what brought you from your sort of, you know, or professional origins into now being a sort of a proponent of mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Oh, gosh, it's a really, really, really long story. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been running a tattoo digital media, digital marketing agency for about 25 years. And, you know, my background has always been in community, that what really matters to me is that the internet, the web, is really a really large community. And I love the bringing together of a variety of people who all have different ideas and they can have conversations. And when social media kind of developed uh, in, I don't know, 2003 maybe, uh, and it started becoming a word, then I really shifted the company into being full-time social media um, development and management. And right around, to, let's see, 2005 is when my partner was diagnosed with breast cancer. And both of our businesses went on hold. Um, we really still maintained them, but we suddenly were struggling with me being a caregiver and her being a patient and both of us trying to run businesses at the same time. And as most people can imagine, that was very traumatic. Um, it really... It got tough, and I didn't do very well in the, hey, I'm a really strong person, I can handle all this at once category. <laughs> um, so it was tough. And through that, I started to look for ways to really take better care of myself so that we would both be in better hands. And uh, I took an MBSR course, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and I really discovered that my biggest problem was that I really wasn't using emotional intelligence much at all, if at all. And uh, that what I really needed to do is practice self-care and take care of myself and really take a much more mindful approach to how I was running my life and how I was taking care of her. So that's, that's the longest part of the story. What could you define emotional intelligence as? I know it as, you know, Daniel Goleman's work, uh, which is kind mm. of meant for the corporate landscape, or um, at least is a large part of it, because it is believed to take, you know, a lot of Buddhist and Eastern wisdom principles and sort of like um, dialing them into, you know, being a better human and being a human that kind of performs and adapts better in, in any setting. Uh, especially like a high pressure setting uh, and work being that, that sort of utmost high pressure setting. What is emotional intelligence and how does one cultivate it? As you, as you say, there are a lot of different interpretations of emotional intelligence. And if we look back on the good old days in the eighties, even when they talked about emotional intelligence, it really meant that you took one of those tests to tell you what kind of category you were going to fit into 
and then your boss would read it and he'd put it in a desk and forget about it. <laughs> and so that is the old school version of emotional intelligence. But, you know, the way that I interpret it is really actually being aware of your emotions. Uh, you know, when we, um, something goes wrong in our lives, we may say, I am angry, but we aren't actually anger itself. We feel angry. And when we change just that one phrase from I'm angry to I feel angry, it subtly changes the way we respond to that and the way that we deal with it. So once we're aware, oh, I'm feeling this emotion and where I'm feeling it, and then I can decide how I'm going to respond to that. So emotional intelligence allows us to recognize what's really going on and kind of step back a little and get a get a third party viewpoint of what's going on instead of being so caught up in that emotion that it's all we have. Does that, is that clear? Absolutely. And it seems that, um, that in, in sort of de-identifying with emotions, you know, saying it's, it doesn't define us when it's occurring. It is simply an event in our consciousness. Um, right. Kind of allows us, I guess, to be grounded in this sort of place that is, um, is not swept up in, in the qualities of the emotion and allows us to, I guess, act intelligently in that way, right? Rather than just simply at the whims of impulse. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, we've all been caught up in emotion and then later gone, what the heck was that? Mm -hmm. And it's really just that we were so caught up in the emotion and focused on the emotion itself that we didn't get that emotional distance. We didn't have the opportunity to look at it intelligently. We just kept churning in whatever that emotion was Mm -hmm. but when we can step back from it a little and give ourselves some distance and it's there are very simple ways to do that it could be simply stop take a breath and recognize what's going on right now all of those things can dramatically change the way that we respond to things Hmm. and um is in this uh, paradigm, are emotions viewed as uh, useful and valuable or just something to simply kind of like um, uh, regulate? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because I think people think that, you know, being emotionally intelligent and noticing that, oh, I'm, I'm feeling angry right now means you have to stuff that emotion. And it's exactly the opposite. What you have to do is de-identify with that emotion and look at it from that, you know, mouse up in the corner kind of viewpoint Mm -hmm. rather than um, really allowing it to get you caught up or trying to stuff it in just, I'm going to ignore that right now because you're not, you're not going to ignore that. You have to deal with it, but you can deal with it a lot faster if you notice it first. Mm -hmm. And it seems that um, when you sort of cultivate emotional intelligence, uh, you are developing an understanding of how to not only navigate them in in yourself, but also um, sort of understand when they're arising in others, and how to, and being like sensitive to that, and and better sort of communicating uh, in the emotional landscape. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I I'll give you an example of when I did all this study about emotional intelligence and mindfulness. I started talking to other caregivers and going, okay, how are you dealing with this? And I wrote a book called When Life Hits the Fan as the basis of um, kind of explaining 
some of these things. And, you know, when you're in the hospital and you're in an emergency room, let's say, and the doctors and nurses don't seem to be paying attention and you're only thinking about yourself and the person that you care for. So you go in and I've done this, <laughs> go into just a rage, get in here, do this now. I need this fixed. Mm-hmm. Later, you can look at it and go, oh, they were taking care of some other patient whose caregiver equally cared about them. And when we can step back and kind of get a higher 10,000 foot view of what's going on, we can be more compassionate. We can understand, yes, they're really busy right now. There's somebody over there who's in crisis. And I need to just get this dealt with in the most efficient and kindest way that I can. Yeah, I think about uh, it's kind of that, that same understanding that separates like um, a good a good, a well-behaved guest in a bar from one that is not. There's the person, <laughs> there's the person like I'm, I could be surrounded, you know, by dozens of people needing something. And there's the person that orders something and they're like, it only takes a minute to make. Why don't I have it now? And, and right. I have to explain to them that they aren't the only person in the room, as diplomatic as possible, you know. <laughs> and there's this tendency, you know, for, for people to not be able to imagine that there are other people that could possibly have needs other than them. And, uh, and so I guess emotional intelligence um, brings awareness kind of outside of yourself in that way. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was a bartender, gosh, in the 70s. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it is really interesting because everybody has that sense of urgency and that why are you ignoring me? And I've watched bartenders over the years and realized I wasn't really that good because <laughs> there are bartenders who will go, you know what? You're third in line, and all we have to do to diffuse that situation is say to the person, look, look at this from my perspective. I've got nine drinks on the, on the line. I've got the waiters down at the end of the bar, and they're all waiting for their orders, too. I'm going to get to you in just a minute. Thank you for being patient. That's mm. all we have to do. Yeah. But we often don't. We always, often go, whatever talk to the hand or we turn our backs on them and none of those things are helping anybody they don't want the thing itself they want like contact and assurance that they matter you know and Mm -hmm. you give them that you know and that like i really want to deliver for you and uh and and i'm doing absolutely everything i can and that's so like and and people don't realize that that's all they got to do uh and instead it just becomes a sort of self-righteousness that defines how they would you know, work uh, in that space where everyone, yeah. yeah. Yes. We get very carried away with our own importance and look, I'm really busy here. I don't have time for you, buddy. When all we really have to do is look at them in the eye, smile and say, I'll be right with you. Yeah. Totally yeah. different approach. And it's better for us too, because when we say those words, when we smile, when we physically smile, we actually change our own body chemistry. The, mm-hmm chemistry in our brain changes and it changes our mood. Mm -hmm. But when we look at them and go, Oh, that guy's such a pain, totally different thing also changes the chemistry in our body. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to be? Yeah. You know, I just, I, uh, I was reading about that really recently. Um, just like everything you do, like determines the kind of person you're like practicing for the person you want to be. And there's never, mm-hmm. there's never a period where you don't have to be the person you want to be, you know, just because the mm-hmm. circumstances are demanding, you know. 
Yeah, but even if you do fall down, having a little forgiveness for yourself and going, okay, I messed up. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You know, everything, we don't learn anything very well if we don't fail first. Yeah. Failure is part of how things go. So, you know, thinking I'm only going to be the person that I intend to be all the time, it's also a lot of pressure. But it's a great kind of goal to have. Yeah. <laughs> we just can't always do it. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, your... I, your restaurant background, um, I, I know it's I know it's not at all part of your life now. And uh, and I remember you telling me in a prior conversation that it's it wasn't during a time of your life where you were like truly you know truly conscious. As so many people I talk to, they're like, oh man, if I worked in a restaurant now, be so it's such a different ball game. But when I worked in a restaurant, <laughs> I was a mess. So, <laughs> but um, but c- yeah. could you say I'm just trying to build a some links here? Could you say anything? that you kind of cultivated in working in uh, hospitality contributed later on to other aspirations, like, you know, being a caregiver and, and, and running a, yeah. running a business and, and becoming a mindfulness teacher. Yeah. Well, I can say several things, but I'll start with every single person in the world should work in hospitality at some point <laughs> so that they can learn compassion so that they can learn the mindset of a service oriented person. It never leads you ever. And it's wonderful foundation. Um, but, you know, when I worked in, I worked in every single position in the restaurant. I've washed dishes, I've bussed, I've waited tables, I've managed restaurants, I was an executive chef, I've done everything. Wow. And Back of house everything. and front of house. Wow. Yes. That is a wide, that is <laughs> a wide is, skill set. Wow. <laughs> it's a great way to be conscious, though, because when you've bartended, and you bust, and you've been in the back of the house, you're nicer to the waiters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, bless <laughs> you. Yeah, if there was only more like you working in a kitchen, you know. Oh, my gosh. Some <laughs> of the chefs I worked with. Oh, my gosh. But, you know, when I worked at Square One in San Francisco, I was an expediter. And I think that was one of the things that I learned most from is that and this is going to weird people out, but it's very true. Even as an expediter, when I'm managing an entire restaurant with 300 tables in it, and it's crazy, I'm not multitasking. I'm still doing one thing at a time. I have a bunch of things in my head, and I have a bunch of balls in the air, but I'm only catching one ball at a time. And I think that's something that people think. So that, for example, You know, when a waiter came up and said, oh, I need this and I need this plate changed. In my perfect dreams, which I probably didn't do in those days, I would look him right in the eye and say, okay, what do you need? I'd figure it out and I'd make it happen Mm -hmm. instead of getting it halfway and then trying to figure it out after they left the bar. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) you know, the the attention to detail, if we just take a breath and stop and be in that one moment, changes everything. And, you know, in my mind, I was a pretty good expediter, but I'm not so sure. Now that I look back on it, I think I could have done a much better job. Oh, well, of course, right? Every time we think about, like, our past performance, there's always, like, we just, and, and knowing the attention we may put into things now, like how much mm. we were missing, it just reminds me of, like, of just how much 
awareness is, is possible, you know, and there's always more and you can always be more like deeply in the moment, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And even really just, you know, understanding the things that we do automatically, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to go get bread, that's not something you really need to think about. That's yeah. all going to happen mm-hmm. automatically. But then when you take it to the table, you need to be present at the table, you know, and it's, it's the same thing with, you know, cooking is, is an amazing skill that a lot of it is automated. You know, certain things we know what's going to happen when we put these things in the pan and everything's going to be fine. But if something doesn't go right, we know that too. And we can fix it before it goes out. So it's, it's a wonderful proving ground for being aware in the moment or not. And I think the best people who perform in any place in the restaurant, the people who do the best jobs are actually present. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think about, you know, like monotasking being a, a thing now, you know, and, and as mm-hmm. like to kind of diffuse this idea that we just need to do many things at once. And when it really just pulls our attention apart and just, you know, spat, uh, splatters our energy. Um, and people think, well, then how do you actually, you know, juggle tasks if you're monotasking? But I, there's a difference between only having your attention on one thing at once and also holding a bunch of things in your awareness. You're not necessarily putting your energy in them. You're just holding them in your awareness and then attending to them, you know, sequentially, because that's all you can do. That's all the mind is designed to do, right? One thing right. at a time. Yeah. Yeah. We think that our mind is, is multitasking, but it actually isn't. It's doing all these little mini tasks and they're all getting blurred together in your head. So, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and there are so many things that we do automatically. I think my favorite example of that is that, you know, when my son started learning to drive a car and I actually had to explain to him, you know, you put your foot on the brake, the car won't start till you turn the key and you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. All those things that we don't think about, once we've learned all of those things and we've got all those steps in place, now when we drive the car, we can actually see the guy turning left against the stoplight. Yeah. and stop the car. But you have to do have all that automation going before you can do that. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges people have with bringing mindfulness or meditation into their lives because they think that they're going to be able to just sit down and do it. And no, it's a process. Everything is a process. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, I have a question. It's kind of like getting into the subtler nuances of mindfulness. Um, but how do you, how do you kind of reckon being mindful with also kind of developing skill at something wherein a lot of the little aspects of it become unconscious and by definition, mindfulness means being conscious and aware of something, but at a certain point, that's not efficient to be aware of everything happening. Um, you you need to allow, I guess, habit and kind of unconscious activities that you've already mastered and don't have to put thought energy into to just sort of occur. So how does, how do you be mindful and also just allow the unconscious processes to occur at the same time? Well, that's, that's a really wonderful distinction because, you know, we're never mindful of everything that we're doing and I don't care who it is. No one is conscious of everything they're doing because we're breathing. Our heart is beating. We're walking we're seeing everything around us. 
And so that open awareness, which is something that we can cultivate, allows us to keep things in our awareness without focusing on them. So, you know, let's say that we're walking down the street and, you know, there's all kinds of things going on around us. And we're going to know all of those things without actually thinking about it, that there's cars going by, that the wind's blowing, Mm -hmm. all of the things that happen as we're walking. But we're also going to be paying attention to where we're going or maybe we're coming to an intersection and we're going to look both ways and we're going to be present for that moment and then move on. And there's a lot of different ways that we can have that open awareness to what's going on, definitely in a restaurant, you know, where we know what the mood of the dining room is and we know where everybody is without having to look up because Mm -hmm. that's become automatic to us. But when something comes up, you know, and it, it ends up in the, in the window in front of us, we also can really focus on that. And what do I need to do right now? Mm-hmm. Or what am I making right now? Or what am I serving right now? People might imagine mindfulness as simply like being aware of absolutely everything. But that can be, that can be also the definition of like ADD. You know, your attention going yeah. absolutely everywhere to take everything in. I consider it more like your attention is available to that which is most relevant to the moment. That needs mm-hmm. attention, you know. Mm-hmm. And There's no like, way we can pay attention to everything. Absolutely, yeah. But in our, it, we, we do carry it with us and that open awareness, and it's something that I like to teach open awareness meditation, for example, because when we suddenly realize everything that's in the room that we're in, it's a lot of stuff, but yeah. we don't usually think about it because it's right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a good practice, of course, but like then it's a question of like practical functionality. There has to be discrimination of like, mm-hmm. where should our attention go? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to dial back into your, uh, your story as a caregiver and um, mm-hmm. how, what were those obstacles and challenges you experienced and um, how did mindfulness um, help with those? Well, as I said before, you know, I was really overwhelmed by all of the things that got thrown at us at once, you know, dealing with the doctors, dealing with the illness, dealing with all of the things that happen when someone you love is in trauma. And it took me a long time to realize how much in trauma I was too. And, you know, there's a form of, Uh, traumatic stress that happens when someone you love is in in crisis. And if you don't see it, it can take you over. And in my case, it did. So when I took this mindfulness course and I started to realize what was going on with me, it was a real epiphany. And it helped me to step back a little bit, get a little perspective and start taking care of myself so that I could better care for my family. And it was really over a long period of time. It didn't happen like instantly. But as I started to get to know other caregivers, I realized that what I was learning was really going to be helpful to them too. And that's when I started really studying. Uh, I went to the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute and did a one-year program there, uh, Stanford Center for Compassion. Uh, was another really powerful place that I went to really understand compassion for myself and for others. 
Um, and I've really been studying now for uh, it's about seven or eight years intensively and really got into understanding how different life is when you're actually present here right now and not catastrophizing about what could come mm-hmm. or freaking out about something that happened before because we realize that we can't change what happened before or what is and we certainly can't change the future but you know when we have this uh attention things slow down so things that used to be overwhelming just aren't as overwhelming anymore because we're more in control of what's going on around us mm-hmm. Yeah, the mind makes it overwhelming, right? It's the mind's sort of painting of uh, of meaning and intensity and stakes onto something. And so when you kind of get that separation from what the mind is doing around it, you can kind of, I guess, interact with it yeah. more steadily. So there's this, there's this thing that I teach about um, really getting, when you're really deep into that emotion, you can get what's called an amygdala hijack. Mm -hmm. So our amygdala is what helps us to run when there's, when we're being chased by something, it's a fight or flight or freeze. And so when we're in a really difficult situation, then that kicks in and it can cause us a lot of trauma. But if we can actually shift out of that mode, if we can recognize what's going on right now, okay, my amygdala is going nuts. And we can step back from it and engage something like our prefrontal cortex, which is where critical thinking and logic happens. Then we don't have that urge to run anymore. We can actually make our amygdala shut up and we can switch. And one of the really crazy ways to do that is to do math. If someone's in a total freak out and they're overloaded, you can say, what's 22 plus six? (laughs) They have to stop. They have to engage their critical mind in order to criticize you for saying, why did you say that? And then they have to do the math. And in that split second, their amygdala quiets because those two parts of your brain cannot work at the same time. Hmm. It's an incredibly powerful thing that we have the ability to do that, but it's a practice. You have to learn to go, oh, that's my amygdala again. Okay, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to do a puzzle or something that's going to break that and move me into into a more conscious part of my brain than that instinctual amygdala hijack? Yeah. Cool, huh? That is an interesting <laughs> hack. I haven't heard that one. I've heard bring your awareness into places. You know, there's, there's all mm-hmm. those different ways of attempting to navigate uh, intense emotions. I always say attempting because... Um, my experience of emotions, particularly anger, is always extremely intense. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I have a really sharp mind and it's really good at rationalizing a feeling and the intense behavior it's bringing about. So, uh, mm. so, uh, so mm. hacking that, it took a lot of observation over and over again of the situation and, uh, and of saying like, oh, my mind just wants to remove the problem. And that's kind of lame, kind of weak, and kind of like, you know, not really wishing to actually interact with the situation, just making it go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we let our amygdala go, it's just going to keep going. Yeah. You know, and, and there are certain things that we can do. We can do physical exercise. Um, jumping up and down is another one. 
because the amygdala triggers cortisol to be released into our system. And until that cortisol dissipates, that level of anxiety is kind of going to stay. So taking a walk is a really great way to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. jumping rope, something physical that gets that energy out. Mm -hmm. But first you got to tell your amygdala to shut up. So yeah, (laughs) something, anything, anything analytical will do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, I find I'm able to bring the energy into gratitude. Um, I'll, I'll thank the person for the experience internally in mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendously educational experience about what pisses me off and what needs to be worked mm-hmm. on. And, uh, and just yeah. doing that, you know, that's a much different mental process than anger, <laughs> gratitude. Yeah. And that, um, that, yeah. uh, that actually works brilliantly for me um, and for, for people mm. who that too. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about um, basically this kind of self-other relationship, which I feel like your work, you have developed a really good understanding of, um, you know, because with caregiving, um, as an act of service, you're kind of walking this line between integrity to yourself and integrity to the other. And both need so much attention in that mm-hmm. in that scenario. And so like, there's, there's maintaining integrity to both parties. Otherwise, the whole, the balance can be thrown off, right? Um, right. So how can, um, how can you, how can you know? Like, how do you navigate knowing what needs attention, you or, or the person you're caring for in any given moment? Well, you know, there is a sense of urgency with some caregiving issues and some of them there isn't. And I think one of the things that I heard from people that I talked to a lot is they felt guilty if they weren't giving that person 24-7, you know, attention. And if they, you know, said, oh, I need a, a glass of milk, they would leap up and go and run and get it right then because they wanted intensely to let that person know, whatever you need, I'm here for you and, you know, I, I want to take care of you. Well, that's really cool if it's like a, you know, weekend cold or something. But when you're looking at a long-term illness, that's not sustainable. You can't do that. So you really have to be able to separate yourself and look at things a little more um, from a different perspective so that you can go, okay, yeah, I I know you want a glass of milk and I will get it for you, but right now I'm doing something else. Or yes, I'll get that for you, but you you need to be okay with that that you don't feel like you're failing anybody if they don't get their glass of milk right now. Mm-hmm. And when you can do that, you're setting parameters for them and you're setting parameters for yourself. It doesn't mean you're not going to follow through. It doesn't mean you can blow them off and you know leave somebody um, needing something, but to be able to prioritize and you know that's a way of caring for them and caring for yourself as well. And it's simply that recognition of, Um, where are we right now in this moment? Does this need to be done right now? Is it something that someone else can do? Is it something that I can put off? Mm -hmm. And it's not procrastination. It's, it's care, it's self care. Mm -hmm. And how about like the, um, caregiving relationship in a situation where I guess you can say the caregiver isn't so enthusiastic to be in that situation. And maybe, maybe actually that's true for any situation. I mean, you know, any caregiver 
might prefer that there isn't care to give that that you know their partner is healthy but like what about in a situation where like they're 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 kind of uh, resentful that they have to be in this situation or they consider it a burden developed a certain maybe disdain for their partner um especially in like situations of mental illness where where the person they love is maybe even no longer appearing to be there mm-hmm. but needs to shift there in order to make it more livable so well i have I have to say those situations are the hardest because, you know, sometimes we're caring for, let's say, a parent who abused us as a child, and we have made the decision that we're going to care for this person through a difficult time in their lives. And what we really have to do then is accept, you know, I I chose to be here and I'm doing this for them, but I'm also doing it for me because this is something that makes me feel of service. It makes me feel useful. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it's really, really hard. And sometimes I just want to walk away, but I'm not going to because this is a decision that I've made. And if you can get into that mode of, I have made this a decision instead of this is being forced upon me, that's one tool that you can use. Now, if you didn't make that decision and it is being forced upon you, maybe you need to rethink why you're doing it and if somebody else should be doing it because that's not helping anybody. And, you know, we all feel resentful at some point, especially when it's a long-term illness or you know, maybe we're dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia or a mental illness, that they're not fully themselves. And those are incredibly difficult. And Every once in a while, I was talking to someone who was a caregiver for a dementia patient, and she'd been doing it for five years. And at this point, her mother really didn't know her 90% of the time. And then one day, she was really down, and she was really feeling that, I, I just don't know why I'm even here. It's not her. This is horrible. And I want to go back to my life. And... A few moments later, her mother handed her a photo that was of her as a child. And in that little speck of a moment, she remembered her as a child and their relationship. And she smiled. And it made it all worth it for her. Wow. Doesn't happen all the time, but it's an incredible story. And it does happen. And we have to hold on to those moments. What you're talking about there understanding your freedom in the situation when you think you're in prison mm-hmm. is so powerful because um i call it obligation consciousness you know where it's it's we we somehow remove our sense of personal responsibility from a situation by by claiming that something outside of us is forcing us to be there when ultimately we mm-hmm. have we have a choice in any situation and and i guess yeah. remembering why it is we're there when we could not be, we could choose not to be. Kind of like reconnects mm-hmm. you with your power to, to, to do what you want to do in your life, even if it's difficult, you know. It might not be what you want to do, but it is what, what, you, what you choose to do freely. And uh, Yeah, and that's, you know, some people use that with work as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say, oh, I have to go to work today. Okay, they've already set themselves up for a crappy day. Yeah. But saying... I get to work today or I choose to work today. Those are different. 
-hmm. And, you know, looking at the end goal or looking at those moments, those little sparks of joy and hanging on to those can allow you to get through really tough times. I'd like to hear actually more about uh, your book. You know, with writing the book, and the title of the book is When Life Hits the Fan, uh, which was very appropriate at the time. And, you know, I really wanted to help people understand that when we are being caregivers, we get caught up in what's going on. And, you know, as we just discussed, you can get into a state where you're really wondering what the heck you're doing here. And that's going to come up for everyone at some point. And what I wanted to do with the book was help people understand how mindfulness and emotional intelligence can really help them be better at caregiving and also be better to themselves because most caregivers are very self-neglectful. They get focused on the job. They get focused on a person they love and they don't take care of themselves. And that's not really the best situation. Mm -hmm. So what I have learned through all my studies and through the things that I've been through over the last almost 15 years, I've really realized how being present, how being mindful can actually help me survive better. And that's what I wanted to bring in the book was to help people see how they could maybe handle a situation a little better and feel better about what they're doing. And someone who's in a uh, challenging role of caregiving or service, um, how do you feel they can also connect with like the personal growth that they can, that they can be getting from something like this rather than just getting through it? You know, how can it actually make them a better person? How's it made you a better person? Well, it definitely makes you a lot stronger. Um, but I will say that, you know, for me, I was really deep in depression and I could no longer see any happiness at all in my life. Mm. I was really to the point where everything was dark. There wasn't any sunshine at all. And when you learn about being mindful and particularly, you know, things like positive neuroplasticity, which is something that I teach it's really a wonderful way to go, oh, there's a really pretty light shining in that window over there. And to give yourself a moment to notice that, to notice the tiny little things that can bring you joy and can bring you happiness, like that photo of that woman's childhood. Mm -hmm. Those little things, once we can learn to identify those and create uh, ways to bring them back, then we can be so much better as humans. And no matter what we're doing, whether we're caregiving or serving or not, leading, all of those things are affected by our own personal mindset and, and how we approach things. We're a lot easier to get along with when we're not miserable. Yeah. So, you know? That is true, yes. You can, my wife will attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you said a word that uh, I'd like to talk about as much as possible in our remaining time. It's a word, and I know, I know what it means, or at least I know the individual components, what they mean on a clinical level, but what is positive neuroplasticity as a practice? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. Positive neuroplasticity is based on the idea that 
the neurons in our brain, when they fire together, they wire together. So basically, when I burn my hand on the stove, I get pain, I get fear, I get the, the impulse to pull away. The next time I see that stove and I go to put my hand on it, those things are going to come back to me and I'm not going to do it again. So that's what happens when the neurons in our brain fire and they go, okay, don't do that again, stupid. And I go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. But we can also do it for joy. For example, you know, what I just said about looking out the window and seeing a beautiful ray of sunlight on a hardwood floor. That's a moment of joy. And I can bring myself back to that whenever I want to. And every time I bring myself back to that, I'm reinforcing in my brain that there is capacity for joy. And the more times I can find those little things anywhere that can bring me happiness, I actually become happier. And those neurons start to fire differently. If we can turn off the neurons, like the negative neurons that, you know, the things that happen and stop those, not just the ones that protect us, of course, but let's say, um, for example, somebody's walking towards me and I've seen them before and I had a bad interaction with them. I have a choice to make right now. I can remember those negative things that happened and I can keep that relationship negative or I can think of, oh, I saw that person do something nice for someone the other day. And I can reconnect in my brain a positive thing with that person. And now I look at that person a little more positively. Over time, we can actually switch that to be, oh, I really like him. So it's really a process of understanding how we can train our brains to respond to things differently. Hmm. Is this process di like distinct from just simply conditioning or neuro-linguistic programming or something like that? Does it have a different sort of uh, modality to it? It's very similar to NLP and, you know, in that I, in that repetition is really important, but, you know, it's the approach of, okay, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to connect these things? Mm. Um, and it really needs consistency. The more that we see little tiny things that make us happy, the happier we will be. The more we see the negative in a person, the more we're not going to like them. Mm -hmm. It's really very simple, but it's something that we don't practice, and so it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to someone who said, "Well, what if this is just deluding yourself, you know, into thinking like into just painting everything with like rose-colored paint when, like, you know, really it's about being real and seeing and and, and embracing the ugliness of things as well." Well, that's a choice that you can make. You can see things as ugly, or you can see them as not ugly. It's really seeing the good in whatever it is. And there is good everywhere. And we can focus on the good or we can focus, let's say we're talking about that beautiful hardwood floor and the light coming through the window and, oh, isn't that pretty? And then we get, oh, there's dust on the floor. Right. That's a choice. You can see something that's a problem, but is that problem like serving you? Or is it just simply like uh, indulging sort of? Um, what well, is your... Negative impulse. Is your perspective the problem? Mm -hmm. Is there a problem there at all? 
or yeah. is it your perception of what's going on a problem? Cool. Wow. So much more interesting stuff to talk about, <laughs> but I, I will have to let you get on with your day. Um, what else um, do you have kind of percolating right now or, or projects or anything you want to tell people about where they can find you and what's, what's at the top of your list that you want people to know about that you're doing? Oh, gosh, thank you. I actually have two really cool things coming up uh, in September, September 21st and 22nd. I will be doing a retreat on the organized mind in Quebec, Canada. Ooh. And on November 1st uh, to 3rd, I will be doing a mindfulness retreat in uh, Ben Lomond, California, which is just outside of Santa Cruz. So I have two retreats coming up this fall and they're going to be so amazing. Cool. So the best place to find that is on my blog, which is at JanetFouts, F-O-U-T-S dot com. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter at JFouts and pretty much everywhere else at JFouts. Okay, cool. Perfect. I'll direct everyone there. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for uh, bringing your perspective. Uh, so much awesome stuff and so much more to talk about. But of course, we have always things things we need to let people get to so i'll cut you loose but uh but thanks so much <laughs> no thank you it's my pleasure great having you all right see you later thank you for listening to the serve conscious podcast please check out www.serveconscious.com for more free content please leave a review on itunes so more people can find me and share that you're listening on social media and I will give you a nod back and we can both become internet celebrities together. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.